You're listening to Switched On Australia, the podcast that tracks the opportunities and challenges of electrifying everything, everywhere. Switched On is brought to you by the publishers of Renew Economy, Australia's best informed, most read website focusing on the green energy transition and is supported by Boundless Earth, using philanthropy, investment and direct advocacy to help Australia become a global force in a decarbonised world. Hello and welcome to the Switched On Australia podcast. I'm Anne Delaney. Thanks for joining me. And I'd like to acknowledge that I'm speaking to you from Arakwal country, part of the Bundjalung Nation in northern New South Wales. You might be surprised to learn that lighting accounts for about 5 to 6% of global carbon emissions. That's more than the commercial aviation industry at around 2.5%. 20 years ago, though, lighting accounted for nearly 20% of global electricity consumption. So even though the world has more people today living in bigger urban populations and more electric lights are being used than ever before, the proportion of global electricity consumption from lighting is falling each year. And that fall is a result of swapping incandescent lights for LED lighting, light-emitting diodes. LEDs use about 75% less energy compared to incandescent lighting. They convert a much higher percentage of the electricity they use into visible light, while incandescents waste up to 90% of energy as heat. In Australia, various rebate programs and incentives have been used by state governments to encourage the use of LEDs since the early 2000s. But even though LED lighting is now widespread across Australia, only about half of Australia's lighting has so far been swapped to LEDs. My guest today estimates that if all the incandescent and fluorescent tubes and bulb lighting were swapped for LEDs, Australia could save about $8 billion in electricity costs every year. Harry Verha is the Head of Public and Government Affairs at Signify. This is Australia's largest lighting company. And he started our discussion by outlining the impact that changing light globes can have on global electricity consumption. As a lighting company, energy efficiency has always been um, important for us, but we really stepped up our efforts uh, at the end of 2003 when the European Parliament was thinking about how to implement the the Kyoto Treaty. Uh, So then also we started doing some number crunching and, and we found... Uh, that at that time, lighting, let's say, electricity consumption by lighting was fairly stable. Uh, we always take the, the year 2006 as a reference year because that was when we called for the global phase out of <laughs> incandescent light bulbs. But then it was 19%, so almost one fifth of global electricity consumption was for lighting at that time. And, and mm. today it's lower, and it will again be lower in, 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 in the course of this decade. And, and how much of this actual use can be reduced by switching from what we call conventional lighting, incandescent lighting, to, to smart LEDs? Yeah, so it's, it's quite a lot. So then, of course, a lot of things what we, that we can do and that we need to do in what I call the energy efficiency domain, also building management systems, insulation, all of that. But then lighting in itself uh, has the advantage of that. It, the conventional lighting, you, you could say tubes and bulbs, are being completely replaced by this new technology, LEDs, so a sort of a chip that, that emits lighting, uh, that emits light. And yeah, depending, let's say, on what you compare it with, compared to incandescent uh, light bulbs, you can save now with the latest uh, efficiencies 95%, so which is amazing. 
compared to fluorescent lighting, which we use in offices, or, or, street, or let's say sodium lighting, which is the yellow street lighting, it's like 50 to 70 percent. So it's huge. Mm. And if you look at it more from a global perspective, can, can you actually calculate how that switch, if we do get to LEDs, how much that's going to save in terms of carbon emissions? Yes, we yes we can. So the, <clears throat> as I mentioned in two thousand six, uh, we were at nine. Well, uh, lighting in, in total was at nineteen percent of global electricity. In twenty twenty, it was down to thirteen. Uh, and let's say we're like halfway. Huh? We'll say a few words on that uh, on this whole transition to LEDs. But then we foresee that in two thousand and thirty, it can be down to eight percent. But then in terms of carbon, so the calculations we did is that in total in that time frame it will reduce carbon emissions about by about half, which is which is twelve hundred million tons, which which is a lot. <laughs> it's hard to imagine how much it is. In terms of global carbon emissions, uh, lighting is about was about five to six percent. So quite large. Huh? Same like uh, like airlines huh? or, or other industries. Um, so that that will yeah reduce by about half. And at the same time, of course, our electricity needs to become clean, uh, solar and wind, so that in total, maybe you go really to, to, yeah, to zero carbon. I think a lot of people would be surprised at, at how much lighting does um, consume, I suppose, throughout the world, because, because for many individuals, it's not their biggest expense. So I think they'd be surprised, wouldn't they, to, to learn that, the, that it, it is such a significant per, um, percentage. Yeah, absolutely, and and uh, and of course, energy prices have gone up uh, in Europe, uh, in the US, uh, but uh, also in Australia. Uh, but before they went up, we calculated that the total savings uh, compared to that carbon, but then the total money savings uh, would be around three hundred mil billion, three hundred billion US dollars. Mm. Uh, so let's say that's about what is it? About four fifty billion Australian dollars on a global scale. And for Australia currently, so in Australia about half of all the installed lighting, same as in Europe, is still conventional. Mm. And if Australia would switch, then that would be equivalent to about 8 billion Australian dollars that can be saved uh, every year. Mm, that's really significant, isn't it? I mean, the interesting thing is that, you know, the, the world now has, has more people, it has bigger urban populations and, and more lights, electric lights are, are being used than ever before, yet the proportion of global electricity consumption from lighting is falling each year. Can you explain what's happening there? Yeah, so it's quite interesting because the yeah indeed because of population growth, the global population grows by about well has grown so far this century, and and let's say the second half last century by about one billion people every thirteen years. <laughs> Amazing, yeah. there were three billion people when I was born, and there's now eight billion. So you can do the math. Um, but then also because of urbanization, uh, there are people getting out of poverty, growth of middle class. And then you see that in that same time frame from 2006 to 2030, there will be a growth of between 35 and 50 percent in the use of light. Because yeah, there will be more people, have more, more light points, more buildings. Uh, but it then also shows that with new technology, and then lighting is a good example, but there are more examples, you can really unlock a consumption from growth. So my view is that as urgent as this whole sustainable transition and, and zero carbon transition is, it doesn't mean that we have to switch off the lights, to cancel holidays, and then yeah, sit on a wooden crate in a, in a, in a small <laughs> apartment. But that you can really 
improve quality of life while at the same time doing this smarter and cleaner and improve people's well-being. Mm. Can you give me some statistics on, on how, as the number of lights has actually increased, the electricity consumption from lighting has fallen? Can you give me some stats on that? Yes, as I mentioned, uh, from 2006 till 2020, the uh, electricity consumption dropped from 19 to 13% of global electricity. And then still, about half of all the light points in Europe, US and Australia are conventional. So that is why it's still, you could say it's amazing, <laughs> that still half is yeah. conventional, because LEDs have now been around for, for a decade and 85% of our business is LEDs, but it also shows that what you call the installed base, so what is really installed in streetlights, uh, in ceilings, in homes, <coughs> takes quite some time to, yeah, let's say, to convert to new technology. So on the upside, you could say that, uh, yeah, we've traveled halfway, but then there's still, half of the potential is still there. But it's also a particularly efficient technology. Isn't that the key to it? Yeah, that's absolutely the key. So the, if you, yeah, on average, we would say like with LED lights, you can save 50, 60% of, of energy consumption. Interesting is that LED lights, they are digital. And that is why we foresaw that, okay, if this is digital, you need to have a, have an, have an, have an, a digital platform that can connect all these light points. So we launched a couple of years ago, a digital platform that we call Interact. Uh, I call it sometimes the Android of lighting, so that, 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 that's easy to understand. So then on this Interact platform, of course, we do all the lighting stuff. Uh, so with dimming and daylight integration and, and, and stuff. But then, let's say a city can then also use sensors in streetlights to detect sound, uh, to, to monitor traffic flow, to measure air quality. Um, but then also because it's digital, uh, it can be connected to a dashboard. So instead of, uh, you could say instead of at night, a facility manager of a city uh, going around the city on his bicycle and seeing what lights don't work and in the morning buying a box of lights and replace those, you really have a, have a digital platform that a city, let's say a mayor or his team, they can, can look on their, on their laptop, on their computer, they can see okay, what works, how much has it consumed, where do we need to, where can we, where can we dim, which can also be done automatically uh, based on, on traffic flows and people moving around. And then you can save up to yeah, 80, 90% compared to uh, yeah, compared to conventional lighting. Mm. Yeah. Can you give me any examples of any particular municipalities in Europe that has addressed this issue of connected lighting systems, I think you call them? Oh yes, certainly. So I think we've now done more than 1500 street lighting projects, has some, maybe ju just some streets or suburbs, but also some entire cities. Uh, actually Los Angeles, Buenos Aires were some of the first cities that completely switched to LED street lighting. Uh, Jakarta in more recent years, it, I think is one of the largest uh, global projects, uh, but also here, so yeah, like London, Rotterdam, Paris, uh, Madrid, uh, also city scale, they all moved uh, to connected LED lighting. And uh, what is in, what is yeah, what is interesting, a couple of, uh, something like five years ago, the uh, an organization called the World Council on City Data, who are headquartered in Toronto, uh, they let's say they work on all the SDGs for cities. They also then looked uh, at, okay, for 10 cities, so what was actually the result of this trend, of this switch uh, to connected LED street lighting? And they found, yeah, they, it confirmed the savings, huh? like uh, LA saved 50%, uh, Buenos Aires saved uh, two-thirds on, on the electricity bill. But they also found that nighttime traffic accidents were reduced by 30% 
and oh, street okay. crimes, so assaults and burglary, was reduced by 21%. And what accounts for that? Yeah, so, that, so that, uh, you, you could say that, yeah, that, uh, you might say light is light and white light is white light, but that's not, that's not true. Uh, so with LED lighting, you have better visibility. That technique is called you have better vertical recognition, so you see better, you see faces and objects better. So you could say people are less naughty and they make less mistakes. Huh? So less crime <laughs> and fewer traffic accidents. And I know, I also heard from people in uh, Buenos Aires, I live sometime in Latin America, I know from people in Buenos Aires that said, okay, uh, our neighborhood is, it feels safer, we go out more in the evening, we engage more with the neighbors, uh, just because of the light. That's interesting. Sorry, just going back to that issue that uh, some of these cities, have, they've saved 50% um, on their electricity bills. How big are the public lighting energy bills for a city on average? Can you estimate that? Yeah, yeah. So on, on average, so in, on average uh, what we call public lighting, so that is street lighting, public offices and schools, uh, can be like up to 40 to 50% of a city's energy bill. So... Mm. So they can improve, let's say, quality of life, safety and all of that, which I think is even most important for citizens. But also, when they save, LA save $10 million a year on, on electricity with the old electricity prices. So it might be double now. But then you can spend it on education, healthcare, other things that are important. So what, what you're saying, Harry, is that lighting and changes to lighting are super important when it comes to uh, fairly dramatically cutting carbon emissions and saving costs. Yeah, that's true. And, and we very much need this. Huh? And I, I would say also when you look at all these climate meetings and every year there's, of course, the UN climate meeting. One of the I think one of the reasons why progress is so slow is that we that that quite often yeah, this is being discussed as a problem and of course when people talk about problems they want to have a, a smaller part of the problem or they want to have something before they do something else and i think it's so what you see with lighting as an example is when you talk about this when you focus on this as a solution as an opportunity then it becomes really inspiring and i think if people then see like hey this big issue of global climate change and what does it mean to me what can i do it's too large to comprehend that actually then they can see like, hey, it makes my home more comfortable. It reduces my energy bill. It makes the place where I live safer. Also in workplaces, we see how people become more productive. They feel, uh, yeah, they feel more energized without having to work more, more hours. So you could add to that. So then uh, I would then also hope that if we communicate in this way about the solutions and what they bring, that people in, in larger numbers express this in their voting and buying behavior. Because I'm not so concerned about the, 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 the direction. I was once asked if I was an optimist or a pessimist. Mm -hmm. I said, well, I'm a concerned optimist. I'm an optimist because all this new technology, says solar, wind, LED, electric vehicles, said that's unstoppable. Uh, but I'm concerned because we are moving too slow. We need to double the speed of action in, in every area. And I think for that, uh, then you just shouldn't talk about uh, yeah, the technology and the policies, but you should talk about things that people really understand, how this touches their lives and how it really matters for their future and, and of that of next generations. And, and, and you think that lighting clearly is something that people can easily understand, whereas with, I suppose, some other technologies, it's, it's a little bit more complicated? Yeah, so yeah, of course uh, we are a little bit uh, lighting nerds, uh, being <laughs> a lighting, <laughs> a lighting company. So we, we see everything uh, through a lighting filter. But then, yeah, you could also say, uh, yeah, without light there's no life, 
Uh, and lighting, interestingly, the incandescent light bulb, which is now into the museum, is, is gone uh, almost everywhere. It was the first uh, mass electric appliance ever. So when the incandescent light bulb in the end of the 19th century came on the marketplace, there was nothing else. So there were no blenders, no shavers, no televisions, no radios. There was nothing electric. And so in that sense, and it replaced candles. Huh? So it was the LED of the day. And it brought a lot of progress because then people could, yeah, let's say there could be more. You could really see once electric lighting came into being that it accelerated socioeconomic development. But of course now with so many people, with so much energy consumption, with so much carbon, with so much carbon emissions, we need to move to smarter and cleaner technologies. What about the actual cost of implementing some of these public lighting initiatives? Clearly, LEDs are more expensive than conventional lights. But overall, I, w I would guess compared to some other carbon reduction initiatives, it's a relatively cheaper option. Yeah, absolutely. So I was in quite some debates uh, a little over a decade ago on the phasing out of incandescent light bulbs, because when we called for that, and we almost actually in 2006 uh, called for that together with uh, with Peter Garrett, who was then your Minister of Environment. Oh, right. Uh, but then at the Bali Climate Conference, uh, the US pulled out, so then uh, then this this didn't happen. But then, but then at that time, in quite a few debates that I was in, uh, then I also said, like, yeah, the, the cheapest lamp is the most expensive. Uh, if you look at it, um, if you would have 10 LEDs at home uh, with current electricity prices, well, let's say if you would still have 10 incandescent halogen lamps at home uh, with current electricity prices, that would cost you something like um, like 150 euros, uh, a little over 200 Australian dollars per year. But if you would replace those with the most efficient uh, LEDs that are now available, it would drop to 7 euro 50, so a little over 10 Australian dollars. So it's uh, 20 times lower. Right. And, and, and LEDs yeah. are not no longer as expensive uh, to buy, uh, let's say, in, in their purchase price as they were uh, 10 years ago. So within half a year, uh, you have your money back, and then you start uh, you start saving. And the same the same is true. Sorry, and the same is true indeed uh, also for street lighting buildings. So it's really important to distinct uh, make a difference between price and cost. Uh, and then look over the time that you use a certain solution. So if you use more efficient solutions, uh, they're always cheaper over lifetime. But the issue is most is quite often had the purchase price or the budget that you would need for a building or for a, for a, for a suburban area. And that's also why we are looking into and developing uh, service-based business models so that actually you could have a contract with the city or with a large company for all of their buildings for five years or 10 years, you calculate the cost, including maintenance over the time. And then you turn that into an annual cost as if you were leasing a car mm. and you would then be leasing light and you don't have to cough up uh, the, the initial budget. The LED transition has happened fairly rapidly. It's really just over the last decade, but, but how much further does, do we need to go globally? What percentage of the world has, has already switched to LED and what percentage has still to go? Yeah, so, so globally, uh, there's uh, still 35% of all light points are conventional, all technology. But that is mostly uh, impacted by China, who are much further than any other country in the transition to LEDs. So if you, if you take out China, then, yeah, as I mentioned, so Europe, US, uh, Australia, New Zealand, is still 50% 50, 50 of all light points are conventional, so tubes and bulbs. So, yeah, we are really halfway. Um, and it's important to accelerate. 
because also when you look at it in, in terms of building renovation rates, so the yeah really buildings, yeah, so for, for parts you need to have the products available, but then also the speed of the transition depends on how fast you renovate infrastructure. In our case, uh, also street lighting, but most of all, uh, buildings and building renovation rates are really low uh, around the world. Uh, they, they're close to like one, maybe at best one and a half percent per year. And that needs to double. So that is also the focus of quite some political developments in Europe and in the US. And I think also your new government is looking at this. And I sometimes call it, I sometimes call it the magic 3%. So we would need to move to 3% renovation rate per year. And then you can imagine huh, that we have a little less than 30 years till 2050 when we need to become uh, carbon neutral. And then over, and then 3% per year, and then you, you can do the math and then that, that would help. So it's really important that also in, 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 in policies and in ambition levels on renovation. That we and when you talk about renovation, what, what are you referring to? Are you referring to energy efficiency and the, the uh, insulation, etc.? Or what, what else do you mean? Indeed. So, the, so lighting, building management system, heating, insulation, uh, solar, clean energy on, on the roof or, or in any other way. So the buildings really become more than 50% energy efficient. And for new buildings, uh, there's, there are also developments uh, that are, I think in Europe we have regulation that as of 2030, all new buildings need to be carbon neutral. And actually public buildings, which, is, which I think is good progress, uh, they have set an ambition level for 2027. So then, but yeah, most buildings in 2050 will be buildings that are in place today, certainly have for developed countries. So that's why we need to step up on, on, on renovation. But it's, mm. a, it's all packaged and it has similar benefits as I explained for street lighting. So your buildings will become more comfortable. Uh, you'll have lower energy bills uh, for sure. Uh, you'll become less dependent uh, on, 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 on um, yeah, that's on fossil fuel prices. Did you know, by the way, I don't know the number for Australia, but did you know that Europe imports for 1 billion euro per day in fossil fuel? Yes. So if you replace that, if we do renovation, we wouldn't be needing that. And actually renovation, sometimes energy efficiency is seen as, as invisible and therefore difficult to do. But actually renovation is, is you could say, yeah, not blue or white color, but it's a green color job. So people putting in double glazing, changing the lights in the ceilings, putting in building management systems, putting solar on the roof. And those are good jobs. And also for Australia, of course, and then some people in the fossil fuel industry, they, but, so those jobs will eventually disappear. But then those people also know how to roll up their sleeves. So I think quite a few of them could be reskilled uh, to installers and, and renovation uh, technicians. And, and that would be local jobs that are good for the local economy and instead of social insurance uh, for unemployed people or paying uh, for, imp let's say, uh, for importing fossil fuel, uh, then this would be a much better solution. Mm. Can I just focus on that issue of, of building renovation? A, a few years ago, you wrote a report, the energy efficiency and electric vehicles, and that included a number of scenarios and recommendation, recommendations, including a scenario where you saw the accelerated renovation of buildings paving the way for the electric vehicle revolution. Can you, can you explain how that would work? Yeah, absolutely. And that's even more important uh, today because now, yeah, next, next to, so we have now what is sometimes dubbed uh, the poly crisis. So a lot of crisis happening at the same time, uh, climate, energy, economy, inflation, the war in, in Ukraine, which certainly for Europe, but I think also globally has had an impact. But then 
What it has also done, it has increased the understanding that we need to accelerate the energy transition. And that is efficiency, what we are talking about, but also has speeding up uh, renewable energy, but then also electrification. And, and in that sense, Australia is pretty comparable to Europe, and where we are switching uh, from in heating and transport, but also in industry, uh, from fossil fuel to electric. But then that requires a, a lot of electricity. I don't know the exact uh, number for Australia, but in, in the global average electricity consumption of a household is 3,400 kilowatt hours. Happens to be the same as European, but that's, that's the global average. But an electric vehicle needs for, for driving 10,000 miles per year, which is more, more or less uh, the, the number being used, also needs 3,400 kilowatt hours. A heat pump, depending on the size of your house, and, and we have one since last year, also uses about the same amount. So you can see if we don't, so we need a lot of electricity. Mm. And of course that needs to be clean, but it also needs to be available. And then by, let's say, by doing the efficiency work, you do what we call, you free up electricity that can help and then accelerate electrification of heating and transport. Uh, for Europe, if half of this installed lighting base, which is still all technology, would switch to LED, you also free up an amount of electricity that can power 47 million heat pumps, or that can charge 55 million electric vehicles. And, and for Australia, it's about 10 times lower because of population difference. It would be 3.8 million, let's say 4 million heat pumps, or 4.4 million, let's say 4.5 million electric vehicles. So in that sense, it's really important had to, yeah, to take an integrated approach, so not to do efficiency in a silo or renewals in a silo, electrification in a silo, but really to do them together because they help each other. Yes. What you're saying, though, is there wouldn't be, if we do the efficiency, there wouldn't be so much demand on grid electricity to use for our electric vehicles and heat pumps that we're going to have to have. Yes, correct. And, and if we would have that in abundance, okay, there wouldn't be an issue, but we just don't have the time and we don't have the, the funding uh, to get that much renewable and clean uh, electricity on time. Uh, so it's also, time is also a factor. Uh, we see that where I live, I live in the south of the Netherlands, we have a lot of innovative companies here. GDP growth in the south of the Netherlands is 6% per year, so more than China. In the coming years, just in the city where I live in Eindhoven, and in the area, there will be 70,000, there are 70,000 vacancies. But the utilities have said, okay, the grid is congested, is at capacity. We have more than 3,000 companies waiting for, let's say, permission to use more electricity. So you already see that, that this, this is not a future problem. This is happening today. And I think the same is happening in Australia. And of course, yeah, you have vast land area that you can use for solar and wind generation, but it takes time to build all that supply capacity. So, so while you do that, at the same time, you can reduce consumption and then use that instead uh, yeah, of powering all technologies uh, to power heat pumps and, uh, and, 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 and charge electric vehicles. Mm. What role do you think that solar lighting is, is going to have in the transition? Yeah, so, so solar lighting uh, is, 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 is actually a combination of, of clean energy, so it's solar powered, and of the service, so lighting. So you have them both at the same time. It, it's zero carbon because it, it doesn't use electricity. It, it's not connected to the grid. And it's particularly important for those areas, uh, mostly emerging and developing countries, uh, say Africa, India, uh, where there will be a lot of new infrastructure being built. So new cities, new roads, uh, new urban areas. 
And then instead of put, putting copper cabling in the ground, so, so they can just put solar lighting in place. It, it will also be digital, it will also be smart, you can also manage it. Um, and then particularly because lighting is part of the peak capacity, huh? so the street lights are on in the, early in the morning and in the evening. And that is also when you switch lights on, on at home, because when you wake up or when you get home. Um, so you also take them peak capacity away, uh, which, which is important for utilities, because then they need to, to have less capacity overall huh, to power everything during the day. Uh, so mostly for new infrastructure, but also for, for, existing, uh, yeah, for existing light points, we have what we call hybrid solar. So that, that it would charge during the day of, let's say it would charge during the day with solar. And then when it's switched on in the evening, it can work on, on the battery. So also would not be loading the, the grid. Yeah, right. It'd free up the grid. Have you calculated um, what sort of reduction in carbon emissions is possible with solar lighting? Uh, no, I've not. But uh, let me quickly do this from the top of my mind. I think a 40, 45 <laughs> watt streetlight in 10 years time have, would, would emit like a thousand uh, kilos of carbon, depending, let's say, on the, based on average uh, carbon content of electricity. So that would go from a thousand uh, kilos, uh, one ton, uh, to zero. Not insignificant. No, no, exactly. Can you can you give me some examples of some of the solar light projects that Signify has been involved with? Yes, yeah, so as, as I mentioned, emerging developing countries, but also countries around uh, the equator. And in our case, we we, we are doing quite some projects in Greece, uh, also on islands in Greece, because uh, you can imagine a, a lot of islands. And also, by the way, in the Pacific, in the Caribbean, for island states. Uh, there are more and more islands uh, moving to solar street lighting. But also we've done, uh, I, I've, I've been at some, let's say, rural, small rural railway stations in Germany, and then the same issue is valid. And then they put some solar street lights uh, on the platform and they don't need expensive cabling. We also see some projects in the US. We see some projects in Africa, India, actually. Of course, India is growing quite a bit. Uh, they're also putting in place solar street lighting and they also do this for rural for rural communities who have no electricity at all and where it's dark and sometimes also unsafe at night particularly for women and girls and then yeah then you can put solar street lighting in in the middle of a of a community and they can prosper in a similar way as, as what happened elsewhere by having those lights they can do some economic activities some marketplaces in the evening but also sports we also see examples of sports said that where kids can can be can play soccer uh, or other sports in the evening simply because they're then solar street lighting. Can I just go back to what you refer to as connected LED lighting? You have explained it, but I just want to get a little bit more of a definition of what what exactly you mean by that. You've you've written that the simplest and most effective method of slashing emissions and reducing energy bills is to pivot to what you call connected. LED lighting. How, how does connected LED lighting to a network do that? Yes, yeah, so it, it means that uh, that every light point uh, automatically gets an IP address, uh, like like any computer, any smartphone uh, would have a connection to the to the internet. And then, same as for other apps, uh, then you develop a lighting app uh, that then identifies those light points in your building or in your streets if you're a city. And then you can just uh, see how much does it consume. It can be part of the of the of the guarantee and the service contract. Um, and you, yeah, and, you, and also you you can you can program you can you can modulate the lighting. So it's really yeah, light points getting an IP address. You're being being able 
to combine those in a bigger project and a bigger program and that is also relevant because yeah I think we all know that we waste a lot of energy uh, more or less have we waste globally half of the energy that is being produced uh, some say even more than that but let's say half but then yeah energy efficiency is very many little bits so it's hard to <laughs> it's hard to hard to let's say hard to harvest but then if all light points have an IP address let's say for all the buildings if you're a company for all the street lighting in a city then you can combine all those little bits into a bigger project and then also banks and financiers are becoming more interested because they want to finance larger projects and there's less transaction costs less bureaucracy so so the yeah the knife cuts at both ends uh, so you can actually manage your lighting better but also you can do bigger projects you can do them faster and make more progress and it's about data collection to a large degree isn't it Yes, correct. So it's really digital data management. Mm. I just wanted to also look at the role that governments can have in this transition and this focus, I suppose, on lighting and the role that lighting can have in the transition. What have you seen as good examples of how governments have led some of these initiatives? I think the, so. there are some examples. I think the best example... Um, is that indeed you need you need the carrot and the stick so you need to motivate people to change and to see like hey that is what ahead of them is better than what was behind them uh, but you also need a bit of a stick which is then often regulation i would say efficiency regulation is very positive because it, it it helps us to do the better thing and to benefit from that and the best example is for years ago when europe implemented what is called minimum energy performance standards so efficiency standards so how efficient does lighting need to be in retail in office in street lighting in homes and that actually led to the phase out of incandescent light bulbs halogen and next month august uh, fluorescent tubes are no longer allowed in europe and that is mm. all because of efficiency regulation uh, so the, mm. the regulation in food is called uh, eco design regulation of energy using products so th i think that's the most successful example and this is and there are also forms of dysregulation on minimum energy performance standards around the world i know also your new government is working on it and i would say that is a really good drive it should be dynamic as technology improves you should actually raise the bar which is happening here uh, but then also building codes uh, so how efficient should buildings be uh, for instance here in europe it's at the moment when you also when you sell your house you have to have an energy label it has to have a certain energy efficiency uh, performance uh, so that triggers also improvements and in the end yeah, they, they're all economical so they, they pay back i would say overall and maybe on the on the bigger larger scale for a country it should start also with what is the national target on energy on climate and today that is mostly like when do we want to have zero emissions uh, which most countries across the world have signed up for 2050 in the paris agreement but that's where it really starts and then you can break that down into efficiency standards for products into building codes but also importantly you can say that the other side of the of the of the coin of a business model as i explained we're moving to lighting as a service but then the other side of the coin is that you also need procurement regulation uh, that matches that so a lot of government procurement is based on lowest initial cost so what is the cheapest uh, product or the cheapest thing to acquire to buy but then, yeah, then the cost, <laughs> they will come after that moment. Uh, so I think there we should move to what I call circular procurement. So that within a procurement 
analysis and then actually you look at okay not only what is the what is the initial price tag but what what are the costs over lifetime what are also the carbon emissions over lifetime and then yeah then drive better decision making and i'm i'm really convinced uh, anna that once those policies are in place they will also trigger the financing because all let's say also financiers pension funds they also want to invest and they put want to put our money and for part of our future pensions into technologies and projects uh, that are sustainable so that that are, have a payback uh, you see that also many of them are then starting to pull out of fossil fuel because they know this will be more expensive it will be costly there will be maybe let's say historical costs uh, that have to be cleanup costs uh, that are there so i think in that sense have been policies business models and financing they can really yeah work can, they can really come together mm-hmm. just a final question harry looking into the future how do you see the the house and the city of the future looking in terms of of lighting yeah the, of course uh, uh, we, we see them all having connected led lighting in streets and schools and offices and uh, uh, in, in, in shops and in homes uh, but overall we would see then uh, yeah really yeah carbon neutral cities with clean transport clean air and let's not forget uh, that when you move to these solutions, also air quality improves. I think in that sense, uh, yeah, then where national governments have to define ambition levels and policies, it's really at city level uh, where things are implemented because that's where the buildings are, that's where the people are, uh, that's where, let's say, the, the, the moving around uh, takes place. So, so cities and the larger part of cities are buildings, uh, buildings are responsible for 40% of global energy consumption. This is where the action is. I think also in that sense, it's a once in a lifetime opportunity. So it's it's hugely urgent and, and necessary given weather anomalies that you've also suffered from in, in Australia. But it's also a once in a lifetime opportunity with a narrow window of opportunity. So I think there, and not only should we do the smarter thing, but we also have responsibility towards future generations. And so I would say, yeah, let's embrace this opportunity with our hearts, uh, with our minds, with our hearts, but also with our hands. Because yeah, most of the challenge is also in yeah, rolling up our sleeves and getting the job done. Very much so. Harry Verha from Signify, thanks so much for joining the Switched On podcast. Yeah, thank you very much uh, for hosting and so pleasure to, to contribute and, and hoping this helps uh, yeah, us collectively to move forward. And Harry Verha is the Head of Public and Government Affairs at Signify. That's a wrap for Switched On Australia. Don't forget to check out some of our previous Switched On episodes. You'll find a range of different conversations about electrification, including heat pumps, energy efficiency, electric transport, one-stop shops for electrification, all-electric suburbs, and lots more. Until next time, I'm Anne Delaney. Keep electrifying. <laughs>